Amen. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, guys. Uh, kids, you can go ahead and be dismissed to your class. Thanks for hanging in there with us with all the technical difficulties. Uh, more importantly, thank you, Liam, for jumping in there. That was pretty great. <clears throat> so if we have not met yet, my name is Jared, uh, and as kind of an introduction this morning, I'm going to take just a few minutes, kind of describe something that I'm over here at the branch and recognize a few people. Uh, so one of the things that I'm responsible over here is our pipeline, right? This is our leadership development program. This is how we uh, train people. This is how we equip the next generation of church leaders, church planners, etc., etc. And so we have just finished up this last uh, year of pipeline. So I want to bring the guys up that just went through this program with us. So I didn't tell them I was doing this, by the way, but I'm just doing it. Sorry, guys. So uh, Lawrence... Uh, Nate, Maggie Davidson, which I hadn't seen her this morning. Oh, there she is. Perfect. Uh, AK, and then Davis, if he is here. Yep, hadn't seen him. Yep, AK's already shaking her head. Uh, but these guys, they have worked incredibly hard this last year in helping us, uh, you know, with setup here, with serving, with the Exodus guides. If you've been enjoying those, they've really put in a lot of effort this last semester to provide those and help get those here for you guys. Uh, and they've just poured a lot of time into it. Um, and they've done great, and it's been a blast. Thank you guys for, you know, hanging in there this first year. Um, you can go ahead and sit, but thank you. They were kind of the uh, guinea pigs of a new system. And the old guys left. We got to change a bunch of things, so we had a lot of fun this year. Uh, and if you're interested in Pipeline, have more questions about it, we're once again starting the process for this next year. Uh, you can email me, uh, Jared at the Branch Delonica. If you have questions, you can come and ask me, or we also have a sign-up for it on our website. Uh, you can go and see it there. Um, lots of different ways that you can get involved in this program if you're interested in learning more about the church or if you're just interested more in being equipped, right? Because we're all called to ministry in some way. Might not necessarily be at a church full-time, but it is ministry in some way to the people that are around you. All right, so this morning uh, we're going to be in Exodus 27. You can go ahead and open your Bibles there. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been walking through the tabernacle, walking through kind of these blueprints that God was giving to Israel on how they were to build this building, this place where they were to come and worship. And I want to give us a little bit of framework around this before we start to read the passage. Uh, it can be kind of tough and easy to fall into, you know, paying attention to those little details they're given, but this isn't just little busy work that God was giving to Israel so that they could just, you know, be busy out in the desert. It isn't these tiny, tiny details aren't in the passage uh, with some secret message from God waiting for us to decipher it. Uh, the point of this passage is that God is providing a way for His people to worship. He's giving them a place to come and worship Him. And more importantly, He's giving them a place where they can dwell together, where they can atone for themselves and come. And ultimately, this is all going to point us forward uh, to Jesus so that we can truly approach the throne, how He has given that available to us. So Exodus 27, we're going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's pretty lengthy, but. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners and its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. 
You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. And you shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And you shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. The court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, and with their three pillars and their three bases. And on the other side, the hanging shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen, twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning and for allowing us to just gather here and be together. I pray that uh, your words and your truth will ring to the forefront this morning, that we will be attentive to what you have to say. I pray that uh, through all these things that you will work um, and that your words will be remembered more than mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you're probably a little tired of this picture, uh, but we've got a picture of the tabernacle, and it's really helpful in giving us this visual, right? Uh, so what we're kind of focusing on today is this outer courtyard that goes around the tabernacle, right? Not the actual tent itself, but the big curtains that kind of go around it. And then that altar that is right there, that first little structure as they walk into this gate on this eastern side. And these are the two uh, parts that we're kind of, this is our chore for today. And so the last few weeks, we've been talking about the tabernacle itself. That's the big tent. It's in the middle. Uh, and this place was what was reserved for the priest. It's what was reserved for uh, those who had a duty in the tabernacle. It wasn't just for any regular lay people of Israel, the common people. It was for the priests themselves, and it was only under special circumstances that they were able to come here. And so this morning, we're kind of turning our attention away from 
the priest, away from uh, what happened in the tabernacle, and we're getting to look more at the people of Israel. Uh, people like us, right? They have a lot of similarities with, um, you know, they're not priests. They're just the regular lay people. And so we get to look and see uh, that the attention of this passage is turning towards that. And all of this is pointing us back to the garden specifically. Uh, and this is because God was making a claim here on earth in the tabernacle uh, so that he could dwell and worship with his God again. He was creating this place for his people. And so while we look at all this, we see that uh, he is giving this for everybody to come together and worship him. And they were to have the tabernacle in the courtyard and the altar uh, and all of these things would allow people access, the altar through the atonement of their sins, through the sacrifices. Uh, and this is where they would come to worship. And it was a way for the nation to be involved in glorifying God, not just for the priest to come and be in his presence, but for the entire nation. And so we're going to kind of take this in three chunks. Uh, the first thing that we see this morning is the altar. Right? And this is what was placed right in front of the gate. So when people would walk into the tabernacle courtyard, when they would come into this special place of worship, the first thing that they would see is the altar. And this position of the altar is very intentional. It is, uh, first and foremost, the first thing that they would see. So you couldn't just walk past it and get to the rest of the courtyard. You would intentionally have to walk past the altar. And we also see that the position of it was important, right? Because it was placed between the people and between God. And it's showing that this is the first step in their uh, tabernacle worship. And, and we see that it's kind of given here to them, but we don't get a lot of description about why it's needed or what it's used for. We're going to kind of get to that, but what it is pointing at is that there had to be a sacrifice, right? Uh, that the, because of the sin of Israel, um, their atonement was needed so that they could then have access to this courtyard and the ability to dwell in God's presence. And a lot of times this gets kind of boiled down to, you know, God is angry, so therefore we have to kill something, right? That's not the case here. What we see here is that out of God's love, out of His mercy, out of His grace for the people of Israel, He is allowing them to have a stand-in. He's allowing them to have a substitute uh, for something else, so that instead of them dying because of their sins and their guilt and what they've done, they instead have this... Um, sacrifice that they would make, the blood of something else would be spilled to allow the cleansing of the people and the cleansing of the tabernacle. And the a purpose of this would be very apparent to Israel. Right? Sacrifices were a very common thing in, the, in this day and age in the, in the Middle East. This was a common religious practice, but it is missing a lot of instructions on how this would be done. And the rest of the instructions for it come later in, in Exodus, we get a short section, and then in Leviticus, we get a much longer one. And I won't read all of it now. You're welcome. Um, but if you want more explanation of what's going on in this passage, I really encourage you to go home this afternoon and read through the first four or five chapters of Leviticus to kind of show this. But a few details that kind of help us in understanding what's going on here is, uh, uh, one, the sacrifice had to be without blemish. Right? This had to be perfect. Israel had to offer up the best that they had, animals without defects, uh, males a year old, etc., etc. They had a lot of things that they had to fit into this category for sacrifices. They couldn't just walk down the road and pick up you know, roadkill and put it on the altar. And that wouldn't work. What God was asking for is for them to give the best that they had available. 
And two, we see that it was made so that they could be atoned for, so that they could have this peace with God between them. And it is, again, it is this grace He was allowing for this blood to be the stand-in for what they have done. And so, now once the sacrifice and the atonement had been made, once these things happened, they could continue in worship in the tabernacle. And all of this isn't just uh, because God had a craving for burning flesh, right? If this was the point, He would have made cows to just combust on their own. Um, Instead, what we see is that He is after the atonement. He is after the worship of the people. He is after their dedication and desire to follow Him. And so, He is providing a way for this to happen through the altar, through the instructions of the building, uh, the sacrificial system that He gives is God calling Israel to be dedicated to Him. He wants their hearts to be turned. He wants them to see their unholy condition, to see uh, what they have done, to see their wrongness, and to turn and give this sacrifice out of the love that they have for Him, to give abundantly what they have. And all of this just so that they can have this ability, this, this dwelling with God, and come to know Him better. And we're kind of pointed at this heart behind worship in Hosea 6, right? And a little bit of background, Hosea 6, this is uh, later after King David, this is before the Babylonian exile, um, and so the, the people of Israel were, were worshiping idols, they were worshiping other gods. And so while they were technically, right, I use that term very loosely, while they were technically making sacrifices and spilling animal blood, they were giving this to other gods. They were offering it up in worship to other gods, right? And he says, uh, Hosea says this in chapter 6, verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings. Right? And these words are again repeated later in Matthew 9 by Jesus, who again, he is telling Pharisees who technically, right, they followed the law, they did the law, they, they might have heaped a bunch of extra things on it, but they followed it incorrectly uh, because they weren't after this genuine worship of God. They were after worship of selves. They were polluting this worship with their own self-worship and their own desires, right? It wasn't this worship uh, that was being exercised just so that they could know God more. It was being exercise so that they could build up their own fame. They could make themselves great. So, the next big chunk that we see being described is the courtyard of the tabernacle. And again, depiction, this is what it is to look like. This is what you are to build, but not a lot of instructions or uh, specifics on what happens here. This is the area that the people of Israel would have had access to. This is where they would have come to worship. It is where they would come to see God and to feast with Him, right? So turn with me to uh, De- Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 14. kind of lays out uh, more specific instructions of what they were to do when they were to come to the tabernacle and how. So Deuteronomy 10, 10 oh, sorry, 12, 10 through 14. It's on the screen behind me as well. This is Moses talking um, right before Israel was to enter into the promised land. But when you go over the Jordan and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord." And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. 
Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So through this, we start to see a few things uh, that kind of point back again to this heart of worship, what God is calling them to, what He is providing them to do, right? This courtyard, later it would become the temple, um, He was calling them to come here for a few things. One, they were to rejoice, right? We see this in Deuteronomy here. This is a simple point for us to understand. We understand what it means to be happy or rejoiceful. Rejoiceful isn't a word. Joyful. Uh, We understand what that means, but the the difficulty that comes for us is focusing our attention, focusing our joy. We know what it means to celebrate good things, right? And for me, this usually comes when, when we go to Dairy Queen for ice cream night during the week. It's a happy, joyful time. Uh, But God is calling Israel to come and worship Him with rejoicing and awe and amazement, right, at how He delivered them, how He is continuing to cleanse them, this grace that He is giving them. And it isn't this uh, distracted sense of joy where, you know, it's good to be happy of things in life, but it is not good to let these things come over us, to, to let it dawn, or not dawn, to let it overshadow the joy that we're supposed to have for God and what He has said. And that's exactly how he is calling us to still worship, right? Two, we see that they were to bring all of their offerings here. And this is the place that they were to be with God. And already I highlighted some of the details that show with, uh, you know, some of the sacrifices and the sacrificial system we see in Leviticus. But one in particular that kind of helps us see what's going on here is the peace offering, right? If you go and you read uh, the details of the peace offering, this wasn't like uh, the, the guilt offering or the sin offering or the burnt offering where it would be given um, that was required in a response to sin. And a lot, unlike these other offerings, uh, they were allowed to eat a portion of it, right? They'd give a portion to the Levites, but then they would sit there and they would have a portion with them. They would kill this animal, right? They'd give God the best portion, and they would share the rest of it with each other. And the ESV Bible, uh, study Bible puts it this way. This offering achieves and expresses peace or, or fellowship between an offerer and the Lord. In Old Testament times, such meals were a means of affirming a covenant. Generally speaking, then, this offering was a time to remember and to reaffirm the covenant relationship between the Lord and Israel. Right? What does this kind of sound like for us? It's communion, right? It's what they were doing here. That is exactly what's going on. It's through these offerings they're coming together to have a feast with God. They're having a meal with Him in His presence, right? And this is an awesome thing that He is providing them for. It isn't just uh, curtains that would look nice in the middle of their, uh, you know, the tent, the people. But it is so that they could come and see God and be with Him through the terms and the systems that God had given them. And they were to do it together, right? The expectations of how they were to do it together were pretty massive as well. You were to bring your sons and your daughters, your kids. Okay, I get that. We come to church as a family together. That's something most people do. Uh, They were also to bring their male and their female servants, the people they work for. All right, that's fine. Uh, My boss bought me lunch this week, not too far of a stretch. I can see that. But they were also to share it with the Levite, with the priest. And one thing in particular that was pointed out here is that they were to share it with one who did not have a portion. The Levites didn't have a portion of inheritance in Israel. God was their portion. The people were to provide for them. And so they were sharing this intimate meal with with basically this stranger, um, one who didn't have anything, 
in this together, this odd group, they would take time to worship and feast together with God. And that's kind of what worship in the tabernacle would look like. Together, Israel was going before the Lord. They were worshiping Him. They were remembering what He had done. And they were doing it joyfully, genuinely, worshiping together. Right? And this is uh, much more than uh, just sitting next to a stranger and singing. Right? That's part of it. But it's much more because they are very intimately involved together. And all of this would be done so that they could, you know, remind each other constantly. Point back to, you remember when God did all these plagues and split the Red Sea and brought us, right? You remember how God delivered us from our sin? It is all these things that they would remind each other about so that they can then glorify God more with one loud, unified voice so all the nations around them would see this. Right? And the final chunk that we see from this passage is the oil for the lampstand. And there's not a lot here, but simply put, this was a requirement of Israel to provide for the temple. It was a way for them to be involved, something that they were to bring, something that they were to contribute back to the worship for God. And it was a giving back to God out of the abundance of what He had given to Israel. And this is kind of like how we stress generosity at the, the first of our service, right? We didn't do a whole lot of it today, the guitar thing fine. Um, But it was a great way for Israel to be involved in the worship of God, in this gift. Just like we might bring an offering or uh, to put in the coffee cans or, you know, just how we take time to greet one another. They were to be generous with what they had because God had given them plenty. And that's the picture of how the lay people, how the common people of Israel would worship before God. And it points to how we, as God's people, are to worship with joyful, generous hearts continually reminding each other of the good things that God has given us. And I want to kind of be very careful with how I put this, um, because the tabernacle and the courtyard and the sacrificial system, these were all good things, right? He was giving them a place to dwell. Uh, These things were not bad. These were gracious, loving gifts from a good father that he was giving to his people. But the courtyard of the tabernacle uh, was not a perfect thing. It was not a complete thing, right? And when they would come here, they would worship in this way that was kind of separate, that left it sort of empty and longing for more. It would have created a lot of tension because they were together with God, but they were still separated from God. Even after offering their best sacrifices, the best that they had being atoned for, they could still only come close. They could only look across to the tabernacle, and you know, I imagine they're probably trying to get a glance in, see what's going on. Um, but that isn't exactly what they were allowed to do. Imagine it, and I can't imagine it like this, right? It's your wedding day. You're preparing for months. You've done the planning. You've done the steps. You've gotten ready, uh, and your spouse is waiting at the altar, the end of the aisle, because in this scenario, uh, you get to be the one that walks down the aisle. Um, so they're standing there. They're waiting for you to walk down. The music starts, and you're about to start walking to meet them. Uh, but before you can get too close, you're blocked by this gate, right? A little velvet rope that a bouncer might stand at. But you're blocked. You can't go any farther. And so you're close to your spouse, right? And you're together in a sense, but not perfectly together. And this was the situation that Israel kind of found themselves in. Uh, their relationship with God was there, but it was not quite together, And John Calvin puts it in this way, right? In this manner, the condition of mankind was shown to the Israelites by their being forbidden to enter the temple, while at the same time they were reminded that men, although unworthy outcasts, are received by God. 
if only they seek Him simply and with due humility, mindful of their own unworthiness. So even when they would do these things correctly, when they were giving their best sacrifices, having the most joyful seeking hearts, the presence of God was still blocked. Uh, it was still unavailable to them. It was still uh, across a tabernacle, just, you know, a glance away. And all of this was intended to point to the need for Christ, to point to the need for the promised uh, heir that God had given back in Genesis 3. It's pointing to this sort of emptiness that God's people had that they still needed to be filled. It points to the need of a Savior. Right? And this is what we have given to us through Jesus, that although that we are unworthy, that although we, um, the closest that we could come is just a glance, just separation, that it is uh, through the death of Jesus, through His, uh, His giving of His life that we have this um, way to come to God, that this separation is torn away. Right? Last week was, was Easter, and we talked about how the veil was torn. It's the same thing. This is how God has given His people uh, through Christ uh, so that we can come to know Him, that by believing in Jesus that we can have this closerness, this perfect togetherness that He intended, that He is calling us to be in and to do. He is calling us to believe in Him so that this separation created by our own sin, by our own uh, rebellion would be erased. And this is the character of God that we see through this passage, that He is providing a, a way not just in the courtyard or the altar, but through His Son. And this is what He wants for the separation to be torn away. That even though we are not able to enter the tabernacle uh, because of what we had done, God in His graciousness offers the life uh, that we could never have. He gives it to us freely through His Son. He calls an unworthy creation to join Him and provide for them in worship that we can never do for ourselves. And this is why we gladly worship uh, God who has done all of this for us. In Romans 12, Paul calls us to this worship. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, this gives us an understanding of how our worship is called to be, right? In the same way that we are to do this in a way that is, you know, joyful and seeking like Israel was, like we are to give the best, right? We are still called to give God these things, the best of our time, the best of our resources, and out of a living, loving heart, we sacrifice all the things of our life, right? The things that we may necessarily want or need. We sacrifice these things lovingly with a loving heart uh, so that we can come to know God more, so that we can see the love that He has shown for us, so that we can come to see Him plainly in the way that He has given us, right? And all of this naturally moves us to communion, um, like Israel in the courtyard, how they would commune with God in this peace offering, we have this ability uh, to where we can have a meal with God, right? And as we move into communion, this is a dedicated time that we have together between God and His people where we're to remember the covenant that He has made for us, to remember that all that Jesus has done for us. And so at this time, if, if you aren't 
familiar with who Jesus is or what He has called, uh, we ask that you sit and you dwell and you, you think about the things that He has done for us. We're going to have a few of our elders, our staff guys, will be off to the side. We'd love to talk to you or, or even pray about, or pray with you if you have anything you want to pray about. But for those of us that do know Jesus, who, who believe in Him, who follow Him, this is the time where we, we get to spend a special part of our week where we get to remember all that He has done for us, right? And this moment of self-reflection. So, uh, as we take time now, uh, we'll pray, and when you're ready, uh, communion is open for you. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for the Word that You have given us. I thank You for providing just this way to worship. It's beautiful how even though that we don't deserve it, that You have... um, made a way, that You have provided it for us so that we could see You, that though we are so unworthy of it, that You have made this possible, that You have uh, blessed us with Your presence. And I thank You for that. And I thank You for how You have provided Your Son, that even though we, we may f- lose focus at times or forget to give You what You have called for, that even still after all these things, You still uh, provided for us. I pray that as we go out today that we will remember to, to worship You well, to remember to worship You in all the things that we do in our life, to do this joyfully, not out of a, a heart that is uh, bitter or, you know, finds these things difficult, but I pray that You will just make it easy to worship You and to give all of these things to You, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.